Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make Supply Chain Management Review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of Talking Supply Chain, Decision-Making at the Speed of Sound. I'm Bob Troublecock, and joining me today is Steve Melnick. Now, if you haven't heard him speak at a conference, Steve is a professor at Michigan State University, a frequent contributor to Supply Chain Management Review, and a frequent guest on this podcast. Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much, Bob. I'm looking forward to this discussion. I am too. Last week, I had a chance to see the new Top Gun movie. Now, I'm no film critic, but if you haven't seen Maverick, it's a great action film. One of the things that impressed me was the speed at which the action happens. The pilots are making life and death decisions in a millisecond with no margin for error and often compensating for things that have just happened in milliseconds. I bring this up because I recently had a discussion with a senior level supply chain manager who talked about how in an environment where the unexpected is now the expected, Supply chain managers no longer have the luxury of deliberation. Decisions have to be made faster than ever, often without all of the information a manager would like. It turns out that while this kind of decision-making might be new for supply chain managers who want all of the facts they can possibly gather, plus time to run a couple of what-if scenarios, it's not new for fighter pilots. And perhaps there's something we can all learn from the world of Top Gun. So Steve, I know you're a history buff, and in your articles, you often draw lessons for supply chain managers from history. Tell us what happened during the Korean War. Okay, that's a it's it's an, it's an interesting question, Bob. During the Korean War, the United States developed the F eighty six Saber by North American. It was considered our best jet fighter. Our opponent on the Korean North Korean side was the MiG fifteen. At the end of the war, as Americans are wont to do, we calculated the kill ratio. That is, for for how many we lost, how many did the enemy lose? And what we found was, on average, there was a two-to-one ratio. That is, for every saber we lost, the North Koreans, the enemy lost two MiGs. And the other thing we found was that there was some problems. Uh, one of the paradoxes that was uncovered was the lifespan of a fighter pilot. Uh, either died very quickly at the beginning or you survived and then probability at the end took place. So we kind of knew about this and kind of rambled around, except for the advent of one of the most interesting characters in military history. And if you haven't read about this guy, you should take some time to read. He was a true maverick in every sense of the word. The guy's name was Colonel John R. Boyd. He has he fundamentally changed the shape, the face of air warfare, and yet he was a pain in the butt for the for the Pentagon. What he did when he took his degree, his master's degree from Georgia Tech, he uncovered something called the M E the M R ratio, which was an assessment. You could look at an aircraft and compare its capabilities against those of another aircraft. And he used that to show the Pentagon that the generation of airplanes that they were making were inadequate. 
So people started to become aware of this. Somebody then pointed out something interesting to the colonel. He said, I got a problem for you. What's that? I've just looked at your curves for the F-86, and I've looked at your curves for the MiG-15. Guess what? The MiG-15 dominates the F-86. Then how did you get the two-to-one ratio? And that also kind of dovetail into another question. Why did pilots, some pilots die quickly and other pilots didn't? The answer was not in the technology. And that's important because in today's environment, I hear a lot of managers and professors, my colleagues, talking about the importance of technology. And what Colonel Boyd was able to see was that the technology is critical, but it doesn't compensate for the decision maker. What he found out was the difference between the MiG pilot and the American pilot was that the American pilot was much more adaptive. They made decisions quicker. And he also found that differentiated between those people who survived and who didn't. The people who didn't survive waited until they were certain. By that time, they were a victim. Those people who made decisions in advance were victors. By the way, this is the Sesame Street approach to military warfare. V is both victim and victor. And what he was able to find is that there was a difference. His insights resulted in what's known as the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. And what he did is he developed an entire framework. And at the heart of this is in a dynamic, turbulent, uncertain world, you have to make decisions quickly. And he developed a framework. That very same concept I see being applied by managers in highly successful firms. In today's environment, if you don't, if you wait until you're certain, you're dead. And you know what the irony is? One of the best examples of that is something that gave rise to supply chain risk analysis. Do you remember the fire that took place at Phillips in Albuquerque, New Mexico in May 2000, which then became the basis of everything to do with enterprise risk management, supply chain disruptions, etc. In that very instance, you had the difference between Nokia, which acted quickly, and Ericsson, which waited until it was certain. Steve, uh, let me ask you before I, we segue back to supply chain managers, which is great. Two two questions, sure. um, having having to do with the Korean War. One, the new fighter jet, uh, and I'm guessing the MiG also. Um, were they at much higher speeds? Than oh yeah, absolutely. What would have been World War II technology? Oh yeah. And in fact, thank you very much. I omitted that, that. You know, as you get older, you become you tend to lose things. My wife tells me, I, I, I look at her and say occasionally, who are you? And she says, funny, Melnick. Uh, in World War II, the fighter speed was between three to 400 miles per hour. So two airplanes coming at each other would be coming between six to 800 miles. When the, in the Korean War, you introduced jets, you introduced swept wings. And what swept wings did is they offset, the, they delayed the onset of the speed barrier, of the sound barrier. So these planes were fighting, were flying between 600 to 700 miles per hour. Now, what that means is the rate of closure is versus six to 800 miles per hour. You're dealing with 12 
to 14, 1500 miles per hour. In the past, you in the World War II, you had time to make sure. In the Korean War, you had to make a decision because by the time you waited, that airplane could be on top of you and they could be right in a position to shoot you down. And then one other thing before um, our, our hero, the, the general, developed the Oodaloo concept, were the, were the fighter pilots taught to make decision-making quicker, or is this something they learned on their own, and hence you had victors and victims even amongst you know our own ranks? Well, you've hit on something. What Boyd did is he institutionalized a framework for teaching people about how to make quick decisions. Previously, when the pilots went into the Korean War, they were taught using approaches based on World War II. That didn't work. And people who were able to adjust quickly survived. So what you had is you had a lot of on-the-job training. And the problem with on-the-job training is experience teaches you but it is one of the most painful masters because sometimes the experiences you're taught come at a high cost. And in these cases, they came at the cost of life. And what Boyd did was he said, here is a framework. Here's a way of thinking about it. And so instead of having these pilots learn about it on the job or be taught by successful pilots, they could be taught early on. When you were talking about the Maverick movie, you were seeing pilots who were being drilled in the OODA loop. And therefore, they were when they went out into combat, they were ready versus having to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Because in those cases, you had some really difficult and painful lessons that came, that came about. Well, and, and the, so the other thing, and, and then I, I really will get to spiking because I think this is a good segue. The yeah. other thing that struck me about Maverick, and I'm sure that this was the case, you know, even going back to the, to the, to the wing flight fighters, you know, in World War I, um, it, it's like that, uh, now I'm going to mix all kinds of metaphors. It's like that line from, uh, um, oh, the fighter, you know, the, 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 the boxer who they say to him, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Your, your opponent has a plan. And he said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. That's, that's Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. There you go. Right. Yeah. So everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, which means from that point on your plans out the window and you're just reacting, you know, you're reacting, you're, you're hoping, uh, that, that you're reacting before your opponent, but a lot of times is, you know, adjusting, uh, to whatever it is your opponent's doing. And, uh, you know, one, um, how did that apply to them? Because it, it, it feels in this era of disruption, as supply chain managers, we all have a plan, but with, you know, weather extremes and political disruption and something gets stuck in the Suez Canal and then, you know, less, uh, less publicized ship got stuck uh, in the port outside of Baltimore, our plans go out the window. We're all getting punched in the mouth and have to react. Um, we're, you know, we're always reacting against what's happening in real time as opposed to our plan. Okay. Let me start by saying that Patton even said it better and Patton predates Mike Tyson. Patton said, 
Patton said, who was the great general of World War II, said, no plan survives the first contact with the enemy. But I'm going, to, I'm going to disagree with you. You talked about reacting quicker. It's not reacting. What the OODA loop and what fast management is based on is not reaction, it's anticipation. Okay. Which is, let me, give you the, let me give you the difference. And I live in Michigan. One of the problems we have in Michigan is we have deer. And it's not uncommon as you're going down the highway to see carcasses of deer on the side because, uh, you know, in the early spring and late fall, uh, they go across the highways. If a deer pops out in front of you, literally in front of you, you have seconds, if that, to react. You're not going to be making the right decision because what you're doing is you're responding to that immediate. And in some cases, that means you'll try to avoid the deer, but you'll hit another car. If you anticipate, you're looking forward, again, observe, and you're saying, aha, uh-huh, I see something going on, and therefore there's a probability that there's going to be a deer there. So if there's, hello there. I'm here. Okay. If I heard a kind of a dingle, and I'm going, okay. If you anticipate that there's a deer there, then I can adjust my actions appropriately. I may be wrong, but I'm prepared for it. And the difference is in both cases, what's driving you is not what you know, but what you don't know. So you've got to prepare for that. And in both the case of Maverick and in the case of supply chain, we're moving from risk management to uncertainty preparation. And they're very different concepts. Today's world is not one of risk. It's one of uncertainty. So... Is that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but but as you said it, it made perfect sense. So, on the one hand, this would have appeared to me to be you know seat of your pants uh, decision making when I was calling it you know reacting. But it sounds as if, from your point of view, this isn't um, just the seat of your pants when you talk about anticipation. Just expand a little bit on that. Okay. Yeah. In, in fact. It's not the decision. It's not the reaction that you're focusing on. In or, when you look at the OODA loop and we unwrap it and we restate it for supply chain managers, we find that it's about, it's basically the following steps. It's sense, assess, formulate, deploy, recalibrate, learn, repeat. It's seven steps. The seven steps are really what enables you to manage fast. Let's go through them. Sense. If you think about it, in a world of uncertainty, you're going to have to anticipate things developing. So what you're going to have to do is gather information. Technology, such as IoT, analytics, big data, is part of that solution. The other part, and this is the one air thing I don't hear people talk about. You know what that is? It's the supply chain as a radar screen. Now think of it. You know, one day I was... I have a place up north, and one day we were having a one year we were having a condo association meeting, and in the as we're kind of getting ready to talk about it, one of the people says, "Have you seen the spider web right by the garbage web?" And I said, "No." He says, "It's gorgeous." So I went out and looked, and suddenly it struck me when I looked at that spider web, a supply chain is a spider web. Why is that? Imagine your suppliers being part of a web. 
The spider web works that when a fly lands on it, it sends a signal to the spider. If you talk to your suppliers about issues which are not simply order related, is the order going to be on time? Can I expect any problems? What can we do? Any questions? If you talk about what's going on, your suppliers often can give you information about market developments. They can give you information about technological developments because they deal not only with you, but with other customers. They can deal with customers located in the United States, customers located overseas in Germany and China, you name it, or suppliers. One example of this I saw was in February of 2020, as we were starting to be impacted by the pandemic. I'm a member of the National Defense Industry Association. I'm on one of their committees. And we were sitting talking, and the one guy who was the president of a small firm located in Tennessee talked about how one of his suppliers came up to him and said, you know, are you buying products from this supplier? Yeah, I would, sh- I would look for an alternative source. Why? I'm hearing that the government is going to be mandating that that supplier supply devote its production to German demand. He had a month warning. So when the supplier told him he, was, he had to reallocate demand, he, this company was ready. But here's the irony. Most American companies are poorly organized for sensing. We're great for technical sensing. We're not good for strategic sensing. The second issue, assess. What's assess? It's like in the OODA loop. You're going to look at the threat and you're going to look at the importance. What's the, in your mind, what's the probability is going to become important? You're going to look at the question, is it important now? Is it important in the future? Do I act on it? You're going to have to evaluate it. The third element, formulate. For those issues which are important but not now, you're going to monitor. For those issues that you see as becoming possibly important, you're going to think, okay, we know that there's possibility. What can I do? What are the options open to me? The fourth area, as the situation becomes clear, you deploy. Now, here's the difference. If I am anticipating a deer running out in front of me, I can slow down. I can think about going on an off-ramp. I can do different things. I have plans placed that my organization knows. So what happens is when the event takes place, instead of us responding and having an OS response, and you know what OS means, oh shucks, this is a, <laughs> this is a PG audience, right, Bob? <laughs> I'm tempted it, to say something, but I won't. No, you can't, you can't, you can't. We're PG. Okay, anyway, but you now have something you're doing and we can say we can do it. That's been one of the lessons of enterprise risk management. You've got these plans ready to develop. Then you recalibrate. What does that mean? Have the developments made current objectives no longer important? We've passed them. Or have they made certain objectives no longer feasible? Essentially, you're reassessing your goals. The fourth element, the, the, the sixth element is you learn. And this is one area I've been asking organizations about. Organizations that are successful always ask three questions. They always do a post-mortem. Now, most of you know what the first question is, what went wrong. The next two questions are critical. What went right? Let's make sure we don't compromise 
what went right in our attempts to achieve what went wrong, and then what was missing. So you're going through and using every event to say, how do I improve things? And then finally, you repeat. Now, if you think about it from a, the military perspective, we do, that's what you see all the time. Remember, in probably, let me go back. I haven't seen Maverick. But, Bob, when you watch the movie, when the pilots returned to base, did they just simply land, unpack, and go off to their barracks? Or did they do a debrief? Oh, that's, an, uh, that's a great question. Now, there is the debrief here and there. Now, remember, it's a movie, so there's other dramatic stuff having to go on in terms of love lives. And, oh, yeah, I know. You know it's a, mo- it's a movie. Yeah, correct, right. No, but there is particularly when there was an error, uh, there's a debrief. So, and yes. that's, okay, notice in the debrief, in fact, I'm a military history buff. I just got through reading um, John... Tom Hall, I think it's Holland's book on Big Week, which is a description of how the, how the Allies in 1943 in one week literally took the German Air Force apart by, by basically changing their tactics. At the end of every mission, before the pilots, before the crew went off to their places to decompress, there was a debrief. And that debrief is something that is important because in every instance, you've got current knowledge. And here's the point. If you wait before you do the debrief, a lot of the insights get lost. They're not fresh. Other events crowd them out. We rationalize things. We explain them to ourselves. So in essence, what, I, what, smart, what fast decision-making is, it's sense, assess, formulate deploy, recalibrate, learn, repeat. And it's also understanding that you don't do it by yourself. Uh, Some years ago, I had a chance to visit CNN. CNN became noteworthy in the news media because they were able to respond quickly to events. They embodied fast decision-making. One of the things that they did was they had the stand-up meeting. They were convinced that when an event took place, they brought together everyone who was important. And they had a stand-up meeting. Why a stand-up meeting? Because they wanted a decision made quickly. And they didn't want people sitting down. 15 minutes or less, let's make a decision. Let's go out. We have the consensus. In warfare, in whether it's Maverick, whether it's Eisenhower in D-Day, you have the same event. People come together, inputs provided, and somebody makes a decision and we go apart. When you make the decision, every time you recognize there is going to be a probability that you're going to be wrong, it's baked into the process. The difference is if you make it fast, there's a probability of being wrong. If you wait, there's a certainty of you never being right. Uh, I want to ask you two questions, uh, and and then we'll wrap this up. So the first is is just kind of an expansion on what you just said, which is moving at this speed, you're going to make mistakes. Um, you know, we've historically looked at making mistakes as failure, as failure, and that that you know doesn't have a great connotation. So, is it okay to fail? You know, in innovation, they talk about fail fast. 
The answer is, yeah. And in fact, but what you're getting to is the organizational culture and how the organization treats failure. Uh, if, okay, let, in order for you to fail, let's make an important distinction. Roger Callantone, who is kind of one of the leaders in marketing and who is a, one of my colleagues at Michigan State University, he, he often differentiated between smart failures and dumb failures. A dumb failure is when you tell someone not to do something, you explain why it's wrong, and they do it. Good example, my son, many years ago, we had a cat called Miss Marple. We called her Miss Marple because she was curious, crotchety, and female. She, Agatha's Christie characters just nailed her. My, you know, my, we told, he, she didn't like to be picked up. My son at five years old decided to pick her up. Not only did he pick her up, he picked her up by the tail. Miss Marple was shocked, didn't do anything. Don't do that. If you pick her up, she's going to scratch you. He picked her up next time, next day. Guess what she did? Claws out. That's a dumb failure. A smart failure is when you did everything right and something occurred that you didn't expect. One of the best examples of the importance of smart failures is a story told by Gene Woolsey. And you'd never had the chance to meet Gene, but he was one of the great men of operations management and research. Um, Gene Woolsey told a story about one of the people who ultimately became the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. And many years ago, when he was a loyal, a lowly middle manager, he was responsible for one of Johnson & Johnson's most expensive failures. It was a big failure. He was called into the office of the general, who was the current CEO of Johnson & Johnson. And the way Gene describes the situation as, here's a man who in World War II was literally a general. It was an enormous office. His desk was made of a sequoia tree. Behind the general was a fireplace in which the rest of the sequoia tree was burning. He comes up, so this here's this lowly metal manager coming up, and he's been responsible for a $50 million failure. So the first thing that he's thinking is that, guess what? Is my resume up to date? So the general looks at him and says, are you responsible for this? Yes, sir. What happened? He explained. What steps did you take? Based on current knowledge, we did this, this, and this. Why did it fail? Well, we never anticipated these issues. They were something that we hadn't planned for. If you were to redo this, how would you do this? Well, we would change it to do this and this. If you had done that, would you have been successful? Yes. Thank you. Okay, good. You can leave. So as the guy is getting ready to leave, he stops, turns around at the general. He said, sir. I was expect, explain something. I was expecting you to fire me. The general looked at him, pulled his glasses down. He said, no. He said, well, you know, you made a reasonable decision. You learned from it. Your actions were justified. And besides that, we've just spent $50 million to better train you. And he, his comment was, the, the point that was raised is that the general understood that there was a fundamental difference between dumb errors and smart errors. If you punish all errors, irrespective of whether they're dumb or smart, people don't take chances. One of the things we know from research is firms only advance when you take chances. Firms which are conservative may become old widow stock, but they're not the market flyers. 
And one of the things you have to do is, in fact, I'll give you one of the best examples of the importance of risk-taking. NASA has a group called the Tortoise Club. And these are people who, by taking chances, have enabled NASA to make leaps in, in advancements, technological advancements. And the reason they call themselves the Tortoise Club is because their motto is, a tortoise only makes progress when it sticks out its neck. Interesting. Hey, I want to ask you one last quick question. I'm watching the clock here. I'm so we developed the OODA loop concept. And, and, and as you mentioned, this is what fighter pilots are now taught. You know, when we watch Top Gun, that's what they're practicing. So I assume that this is what we're teaching in MBA programs for future managers, right? Uh, no. Uh, uh, let me give you my experiences. And I've talked to my colleagues at other universities. We're t we teach deliberate management. For example, one of the things that I try to instill at Michigan State is the quick assignment. That is, I would give you the problem on a, on a Wednesday, and I expect you to give me your solution on a Friday. No, no, we can't have that. We need more time. We need more time. We need more time. We, t we teach people to take, we, we make time fit the problem instead of having problems fit the time. And the reason that that concerns me is with the advent of big data, with the advent of these new tools, analytics, we are developing a group of managers who are deliberate managers, not fast managers. They want to take their time. And one of the concerns I've had, and the reason I wrote that article for you about the emergence of the strategic leader, because even as far back as 2017, I was convinced that our managers, we were not teaching people at the speed of events taking place today. And to me, that's one of the biggest opportunities I think schools have if they can just change how we teach, if we teach at the same pace. I'll give you a final instance about how important changing, moving from deliberate to fast management is. September 19th, I was approached by the secretary of one of the branches of the military. They wanted me to work with the NDIA in the project addressing the question of whether they were a good customer. We had to develop, the, we had to develop a survey, launch it by September 30th. This was September 19th. 17th, I should say, we had to have the first presentation in the hands of the secretary, September, October 28th, with the survey closing October 25th. I did it. And what I found in that very instance is if you manage at the speed of decision making, you have a potential to impact the decision. Because if you're deliberate, the opportunity that you're addressing may have disappeared. You know, they say opportunity knocks. In this case, opportunity knocks when it stops. A new problem has emerged. And if you address the old problem, no offense, you're irrelevant. That's great. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for sharing that with me. I, say, I, I watched Top Gun the other night and, uh, and remembered having this conversation about uh, the Korean War with you and thought it would make a great episode. So thanks for joining me. I, I was all... That was fun. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, well, me too. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Again, a special thanks to Steve Melnick for joining me. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. And if you want to hear more from Steve, 
be sure to check out some of the other Talking Supply Chain episodes we've recorded on the future of, the, of supply chain managers. You can find them on Supply Chain 24-7 or at the bottom of the scmr.com homepage. Just click on podcasts and scroll through. For Supply Chain Management Review, I'm Bob Treblecock and Steve, once again, thank you. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.